Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Entertainment World podcast for episode two. Uh, This is Kelly talking, and I'm back with Rachel to do our second episode. As usual, check out the website for all the latest coverage in all seven branches of entertainment um, at www.myentertainmentworld.ca. And we're here to talk about some films today. Rachel? Hi! (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm really excited. All right, so we're going to start with Cabin in the Woods because... We're both lifelong Joss Whedon fans, obviously, Um, and it's a really incredible film. It's got tons of amazing people in it. Some of my favorite actors in the whole world are in it, Um, and yeah, so we're just going to, and the review was actually done by someone other than the two of us, so now we're getting our say. So, Rachel? Um, So the first thing I want to talk about at Cabin in the Woods is I just feel like the marketing campaign for it, I don't know how they could have done it better, but it was one of the most frustrating things in the world because I had to literally beg my friends to go with me to see this. And I was like, look, you need to take my word for this, but this movie is going to be awesome and we need to go see it. And these are like two people who are both dorks who are both willing to go see ridiculous like they both went to see the expendables like they're not snobs so the fact that I had to beg them I just feel like what? well the thing is like if they had marketed it the way it actually is I feel like it would like it wouldn't have had the impact that it had because it would have been it wouldn't have been a surprise and it wouldn't have been interesting and subversive and stuff. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you're right. Cause the point was that it looked like a traditional horror movie, but it, it, it would be attractive to people in its actual essence to people who don't like horror movies like me. So, but I, I wouldn't have gone if I didn't know that it was going to be better than that because of Joss, obviously. Yeah. I but, guess they were just kind of counting on word of mouth, which may not have been the, the stupidest strategy of all time because, I mean, obviously, like, I went around and told everyone I could see that they needed to see Cabin in the Woods. And, I mean, I actually didn't go to it opening night, I don't think. Um, and my Facebook feed was just full of people being like, get off the internet right now, don't read a single thing, and go see Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't know if I knew... I definitely knew about the frame, but, like, I'm not sure how I knew. I guess I knew because of Justin's review, because I definitely did post that before I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, f- I feel like I had an idea. Maybe I saw a picture of Bradley Whitford, because obviously, like, if you go to the IMDb page and you see Amy Acker's in this, Bradley Whitford's in this, Richard Jenkins is in this, you're like, who are they playing? <laughs> like, because they're not in any of the trailers, none of the footage. You think it's a five-person movie. Yeah. And so it's sort of one of those, hmm, okay. But you're right, you're right. The the marketing was one of those unfortunate things where there was no better way to do it and still maintain the integrity of the movie, but at the same time, a lot of the people who would love the movie aren't going to go see it. I mean, to me, I actually thought that the marketing told me exactly what I, like, I expected what I got, except for it was even cooler than I expected, but, like, there's that scene in the trailer where, like, the bird flies into the wall, and you're like, what the hell just happened? Like, yeah. The- fluid and there's also that really funny joke that's funny in the movie too but it's especially funny in the trailer where uh thor chris hemsworth says like uh, we need to split up yeah we, yeah we can't split up and then it's like you see the like air hitting him and he's like we need to split up and toe for grace and toe for grace <laughs> there'll always be toe for my head but that's a different person toe for grace um i'm just gonna fran crans 
I know his name. I don't know how to pronounce his name. That can't be <laughs> right, right? It can't rhyme. That's wrong. Ron Cran. Cran. Whatever. I love him. And he uh, is like, really? And it's just great. Um, but, uh, he's wonderful. Other people didn't think that, so. Other th- people didn't think what? That it was going to be the movie that it was. Like, I had friends saying, it wasn't as scary as I expected. And I was like, really? What? Who thought this movie was going to be scary? Like, I mean, I was scared. There was parts that freaked me well, out. There see, was- I think that it's scarier than it looks. Because, it, yeah, sure, it looks like there's going to be lots of blood and whatever. And there is, I mean, there is plenty yeah. of blood. <laughs> but um, I feel like the sort of moral implications are scarier. The only yeah. thing that would have made it scarier for me is if the kids had turned on each other more. Yeah. Um, because obviously when she threatens to kill What's-His-Face, it's not ever going to happen. Um, but ever, other than that, what I, what I thought, one of the things I thought was really cool about it was it was weirdly optimistic, which I think is great and always I like more. Um, you had posted your Titanic review and had talked about um, how, you know, you had hated it when you were a kid, but you liked it now. But when I went back to see it, I was really disappointed because I felt like it was about the, like, failure of the human spirit and everybody was a bad person. And I thought that was really depressing. And so, but then in this movie, one, everybody is better than their stereotype. They do things like they're shocked when Chris Hemsworth is being an alpha male because he's a sociology major and he's, you know, all these things. Yeah, and I I always thought that was really cool. And, like, the the dumb blonde girl is in pre-med and they stick together as much as they possibly can. And, like, Chris Hemsworth's death while we're – oh, spoiler, but please – just um, point, just in case anyone's listening, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, but it's also one of those things where you go into this movie, you have to assume that you're going to be saying goodbye to all five people. It's just a matter of what order they go in. Yeah. So, but Chris Hemsworth, like his death is really heroic in a weird sort of weird way. <laughs> you know, like every, everything's sort of well-intentioned and they're working together and it's a good person movie. And I liked that. It's interesting that you say that, though, because, I mean, like, ultimately, the movie argues that, like, humanity deserves to be destroyed. Like, I I read this interesting article that was talking about, like, comparing this to the episode um, of Buffy where she sacrifices herself for humanity. Mm-hmm. And, like, one of the things that really stood out to me about the movie when I watched it the first time, I've seen it twice now, the first time was that... Um, there's clearly another force going on that they never talk about in the, in explicitly in the movie. Like, why is it that, uh, Topher's, I should stop calling him that, um, (laughs) hot is making him more lucid instead of less lucid. Like chemistry didn't screw up. They make a point of saying that. So that means that something else has made his pot super powered to make him be like immune to what they're trying to do to these guys. And then additionally, um, there's the message that's supposed to be sent to the guys to blow up the, uh, the tunnel that's interrupted and they never explain why they explain why it doesn't work when they try and do it uh, like in the moment, but it should have been done hours and hours before and it never is. And so to me, I feel like that's like, who's the people that are making this happen? Well, the people that are making this happen is the screenwriter, right? And screenwriter kind of playing God in this sense and basically making the argument that humanity deserves to be destroyed. Like, and that, in comparing that to that Buffy episode where she sacrifices herself and would rather have that happen than a single person have to die. I just thought it was really interesting in terms of, I think Joss Whedon might be depressed. Yes, true. Well, what's interesting about Joss Whedon though is that 
there are a lot, a lot of writers and just creative people really suffer from a lot of depression, a lot of isolation, a lot of, a lot of substance abuse. And Joss Whedon was always just a sort of merry geek and he was fine and he was happy and he had this perfect marriage and this giant circle of friends and he was just such a happy, well-functioning person. So I think it's interesting that this could be sort of like a darker period for him. Well, and if you think about it, like just watching the progression from Buffy to this um, and, you know, Buffy's all idealism. Even just Buffy to Angel. Yeah, well, and then into us, into Angel, where it's like we fight and we may never win, but we keep fighting, and there's value in fighting. So and like, then Dollhouse gets to, yeah, and then we get to Firefly, yeah, and it's like the world is trying to defeat these people, and they're never going to win. Like that's basically where you end in Firefly. They may win a small battle, but they're never going to win. And then you get to Dollhouse, where it's like humanity is just inexorably moving towards its own destruction. Doctor Horrible, which is like this supervillain who only wins through completely losing everything about himself and becoming completely numb, and then into Cabin in the Woods where humanity gets destroyed. Like, I just, I True. think it's funny. True. It, it is funny, but I think it's one of those things where, like, even, like, humanity does get destroyed, but the individual characters have a well-meaningness to them. Like, for example, oh, like, yeah. especially the la- super spoilers, the last two, who clearly we don't know any names, but <laughs> the last, like, the, the, the virgin and the fool, let's call them by their stereotypes. Sure. Um, they, like, they get to the end and they have the opportunity to save the world, but they don't, and it's, but I don't think their decision to let it fall, obviously, is not a decision. It's not a, we don't want to, die ourselves because obviously they're going to I think it's a matter of they honestly think it's what's right and that's what I meant by the sort of positive positivity in the characters is that everybody tries to do for the most part what they think is the right thing to do even if that's a weirdly dark thing yeah no I agree I that it's sort of interesting the contrast between like you know believing sort of an individual goodness but in collective yeah badness like because I think that's true in most Joss Whedon stuff like you know even Dollhouse like think about the individuals who we get to know with huge spoiler alert the exception of Boyd like they all become better humans the more we investigate them even though they're incredibly flawed and they're doing fucked up yeah well the ones who are perpetrating the actual thing like uh specifically Topher and what's-her-face the British one who has no reason to be British yeah do it um, that was a big epidemic those couple of years. Everyone was British, and nobody ever bothered to explain why they were British. There's and- lots of British people. I, honestly, no, this is one of those things where uh, I hate to do this, but I think it's because there's just a lot of British people in Los Angeles, so you get used to walking into meetings and, like, just the person is British, and there's no reason why they should be British, but they are. Yeah, but that, like, that drives me a little bit insane. Like, if you've got someone who has an accent, explain why they're here so like in the five-year engagement for example not to jump ahead but like emily blunt's character i'm like can't we just have like even one little bit of visa issue or this was a school that was like they don't have this program in london or whatever like some sort of explanation of why you're here yeah it was i mean i say this as a canadian who spends time in the states so (laughs) well as a foreigner you can be extra sensitive to that issue yeah. Oh my God. I almost just c- c- killed my computer. It fell off my lap. Anyway. 
<laughs> so cabin in the woods, right? Oh, so what was I going to say? Oh, the things that you were talking about, though, the pot thing. On one hand, I really, I really think is just a matter of like random uh, sort of defense against the encroaching man and like I think it's just a stoners as enlightened rebels thing like I think that was just a stoner story thing and the actual like the cave thing wasn't it they said it was an interference from up top like from upstairs that's why it didn't work in the moment but he goes over and he says you know I sent you this message hours ago and they're like we never got it and then they try and do it then and they can't do it, and that's because of um, the fool. But the reason why they couldn't do it, why they didn't do it in the past, was because of some message that just disappeared. But I, I thought it was because, because he di- dies, quote unquote, spoilers, dies really early. And so I thought he had managed to make it to that elevator and shut it down on time the first time. No, because it was supposed to be done after they went through the, the tunnel. So, like, even the, earlier? But, like, positive about this is because. When I saw it the first time, I thought all of, like, I thought that the ending was going to be, and I was not looking forward to this ending, so I'm grateful it didn't happen, but I was afraid that the ending was going to be that some higher power had been messing with everything and was going to put the kibosh on the whole thing, Um, because I noticed that all these little things kept happening that shouldn't have been happening, that felt very Joss Whedon setting the stage for something big to come in the end, and then I was grateful when it didn't end that way, because that's a stupid way to end a movie, and that's how Chronicles of Narnia is boring, but, um... (laughs) But when I, the second time I realized that it wasn't really doing that the way that I thought, but that these two instances were still instances where it was never explained. And also when you think about it, like all the other ones failed and we don't see that, but there's a certain amount of like, I don't know, weird kismet to the moment where like, it feels like pieces are being moved into places. And maybe this is just Joss Whedon having trained me for like a lot of TV show hours to think that there's always something bigger going on. But um, but I'm pretty sure of it. I don't know. I, I think been... if there's something bigger going on, you have to, like, if the gun's on the mantle, you have to let it go off. And I feel like if there's something bigger going on, we needed that payoff, or we needed to know why or what or how or... Sorry, my phone just beeped. <laughs> That's okay. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it was sort of one of those, like, if something's going to happen multiple times, actually, not just once through the story, I feel like there has to be a reason. So, like, what you're saying is that the higher power, whatever that was, wanted humanity to be destroyed? Like, it was Um, basically, like, what was it, Solomon and Gomorrah, the one with the salt pillars or whatever? Well, kind of, but I think it's also making an argument about, like, the way that we consume our horror films, because, like, okay, so ultimately we're putting these people and we're punishing them for their youth and for their impetuousness and for their supposed sins, right? Like that's the point of the movie. That's why it has to be done in this way. That's why it's culturally specific. That's why it's all these things. And so I think that having these weird contrivances that happen within the movie, even within this very meta examination of why these things happen. So the normal maneuvers that screenwriters have to make in order to make their characters be morons and get killed in these kinds of films this movie's obviously criticizing them. But at the same time, they're making contrivances to try and kill the characters, the bigger realm of characters, which is all of humanity, within this movie. So it's almost like it's working as a satire on an even bigger level. Like, 
while it's criticizing the fact that, like, oh, why is the girl so dumb? Why does she do these stupid things? Why does she have to take her top off? Then within this movie, why didn't the message get there? Why doesn't the pot work? Why did all these plans fail? Like, that's the screenwriter. That's where the screenwriter's stepping in, and he's killing humanity. Like, he's actively punishing humanity for our perceived sins and our, you know, whatever. And so, like, it, it kind of makes the whole thing function on a whole nother level, and I like that it's never addressed. Like, it's not something as explicit as, like, there's a higher power within this universe, but this movie takes place within a meta context that has to do with screenwriting and about horror as a genre, as a way to exercise us as a culture. Fair, fair. I actually, it was one of those things where, because it, it feels like multiple different movies in one, because, mm-hmm. like, those five characters who are in the, the the trailers, like, if you watch the trailers and go to the movie and you're going because you love Chris Hemsworth, that's not going to work out. So, like... He's pretty great in it. Well, I mean, he, I mean, he's fantastic, and my love of him grows every day. But, it, you know, if he's the reason you're going, he he's gone really quickly. Like, that portion of the story is over really quickly, and... I actually got to the part where we thought she was the only one left. I actually thought it was a nice sort of twist that Fran Kranz's character died early because I thought it was going to be, as it totally was, a the stoners see everything clearly because they don't adhere to the men and don't adhere to your rules and, like, all that crap. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was going to be nice and, oh, we're twisting it on his head a little bit to have him die, the guy who we thought was onto it, have him die really early. Um but so then we got to the point where we thought the Virgin was the only one left, and she was just being slaughtered against the backdrop of the, the people having the toast, like Bradley mm-hmm. Whitford and everybody, have, like, doing the toast in the celebration. And I thought that was the end, and that it was going to be this, like, almost like a franchise, basically. Like, we could do this all the time. Mm-hmm. And it would be, like, this commentary on horror films, and especially because Cabin in the Woods was a response very much to the Saw franchise, I thought it would be interesting if they did a bunch of them and then it just kept going and think like I literally I'm not a big swearer but I was sitting I went to the movie alone and it was a relatively crowded theater and I was sitting there and like like every two minutes there was another thing that happened and I just went fuck (laughs) fuck like over sorry uh, expletives but like over and over again like it just kept coming it would, and it kept changing, and the game changed dramatically every couple minutes. It was insane. See, the trailer actually totally spoiled me on the whole uh, the fool coming back thing because, um, I mean, obviously, like, I was paying attention to him because I really like him, and he was so fantastic um, in the second season of Dollhouse. So, like, when I was watching the trailer, I was watching him, and I knew that he and the, the virgin end up in that elevator together. And so, like, I'm watching this, oh. and I'm like, he's not dead. I know he's not dead. And I was so mad when when I thought it was going to just end in that moment that you were talking about. I was like, this is stupid. Like, I know he's not dead. Oh. And then See, but that, that's the that. fault of the marketing department because they shouldn't have done that. Right? I was pissed. Because I I didn't notice that. I I couldn't remember. Like, I don't remember the trailers that well. I do remember the bird flying into the thing. I actually don't think they should have done the bird flying into the thing. I think it should have been marketed strictly as a cabin movie. Um, Yeah, I was okay with it. I felt like you kind of needed to hint at it. I was just pissed about the Topher thing because I didn't want to know that. Like, I wanted to... Because I, I, that would have ruined it for me a little bit if I had known because I wasn't paying attention to the trailers as much. 
Because, um, yeah, I, I liked that idea of thinking it was over and then boom. I also, one of my favorite things about the movie, and this is pathetic and weird, um, was the merman choke. <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> I literally, I literally was sitting in the theater and my friend Bora, who's one of the writers, she uh, has this thing about mer people. She's obsessed with mer people. She thinks sometimes when she's feeling weird that she looks like a mermaid. Yes, hi Bora, I know you're listening. Um, and, and so mer people, and there's something funny about mer people. And then they did this one joke, and it was just a one liner when it started. And I love everything about Bradley Whitford. And the entire theater doesn't get it. They're just like, okay, whatever. And I literally let out like a honk. Like I was like, ha! And the whole theater thought it was crazy. And then it came back two more times. And I was like, this is the best joke that ever happened. (laughs) And it wasn't, but I liked it so much. It was really funny. It's funny that you say that about the audience because the movie originally got some kind of bad cinema scores uh, from the audiences leaving. And both times that I've gone to, to see it, um, I feel like the first 30 minutes or so, the audience just does not react to anything. And I'm like snorting and laughing. And normally the people with me are snorting and laughing because they're realizing yeah. that like, oh, I'm supposed to be laughing. Um, but the audience, it, it legitimately took them like 45 minutes in order to um, like get it together. And so because of that, it was sort of interesting to think of the reactions that the audience is having. Do you think it's interesting, or that that could be possibly because of the genre? Because I find a lot of people will go into a, a movie or a play or whatever very aware of the genre that they're supposed to be watching. And mm-hmm. so, like, this is a horror movie. I can't laugh at horror movies. And so all the jokes that they would laugh at uproariously if they had been told it was a comedy, they sort of let pass because they don't want to be laughing at a horror movie. Yeah. Because, like, a lot like it is, it's so tongue-in-cheek, and it's so, but it's so very Joss's humor. Like, if you get him, it's sort of, you, you're you tuned into what he's saying. And it's funny, things like, like, casting Bradley Whitford, that character is basically super, like, dark version of Josh Lyman. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of walk and talk. The pace, like, the pacing is very West Wingy. And so you get a lot of, like, that's a joke that people might, may or may not get. Or Amy Acker in her lab coat. Things like that that's just in the casting or in whatever is just very there. Or like Fran Kranz played a genius on Dollhouse. I would imagine he plays lots of geniuses. So to have him be the crazy stoner, even at the very beginning, you're sort of tuned into, okay. Yeah, it definitely was a movie that you benefited from being a huge weed dork. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I th- I th- and I think without the comedy, it would have been... It wouldn't have been as good, and there is a point that the I think it, Richard Jenkins makes it, or maybe Bradley Whitford, and he's talking about because uh, someone the the crazy like the moral compass guy who serves very little purpose um, is talking about or like condemning them for betting, and he's like uh, we couldn't do this if we didn't bet mm-hmm. sort of thing like or maybe Amy Acker said you know they're letting off steam or whatever, um, and I think that's that's true. I think if we didn't have that sort of act one relaxation of it being really funny, it would be harder. Or or it would be actually, like, it would be harder to get the point across because I think we'd be on edge the whole time and then we'd be a little more prepared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that Joss really likes doing. When you think about, like, uh, Dr. Horrible, that's pretty much the whole... Yeah third act of that where like it's like oh my goodness this is so funny look at him look at oh look at uh nathan fillion crying because he gets hit and then you're like 
holy crap, like, you are punishing me for every laugh I just had. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a couple jokes early on that I feel like if, like, you, if they're easy to, you can laugh at them, but then you sort of go, oh, that's sort of weird. Like, Chris Hemsworth specifically has a joke where the joke is that he's being the crazy possessive alpha male and putting down his girlfriend, but mm-hmm. then he laughs, so you sort of get that that's their relationship and that he's clearly joking because that's so absurd for their relationship. But it's sort of one of those weird jokes where you're watching it and you're like, what? And then he laughs and you go, oh, <laughs> that was really funny, Chris. says, who gave you those? Yeah. The thing about the, the textbooks. Yeah. And he's so big, right? So, like, the second he starts yelling, you go, wait a minute. Ah, oh, ha, it's a good joke. I get it. Ha, 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 you're funny. I find it really interesting that he's in it just because, like, when they made it, um, he was no one. Like, Well, because Joss then, was the one who called Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, and then it doesn't come out because of MGM's collapse and all that. And then, you know, two and a half years later, he's super famous <laughs> and, like, it's just funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I always appreciated one of those. That's fun. But I, I like that story because he, he wasn't in Thor and Joss Whedon just thought that was so stupid. So he just called the director and said, hey, audition this kid. I love it. He hadn't even been in Star Trek when they shot Cabin in the Woods. Really? Um, he might have shot Star Trek. But by the time they were shooting, I'm, I just did research. Like, because that was in 2009 when it came out. So I don't even think Star Trek had come out when they were shooting Cabin in the well, Woods. And Star Trek was a funny one because he literally has like three lines in the whole movie. And but I he's specifically. So great. Re- he's so great. But I specifically remember after that movie came out, everyone was talking about this random guy who had three lines. And they're like, he's such a big deal now. He's going to be a big star. And I'm like, okay. But he had three lines. I mean, he was very good in those three lines. But it's very weird. I mean, like, for me, at least, the first ten minutes of Star Trek are one of the best first ten minutes. It's funny because it came out the same summer as Up, and both of them (laughs) had, like, astonishing first ten minutes. But both of them also made me sob for the first ten minutes. And, um, anyway, so, like, he's so good, though, because he brings so much to that moment. There's this line where he says, um... Oh, what does he say? He says, um, she says, oh, we should name him after your dad. And he goes, Tiberius, that's the worst. (laughs) And he puts like 17 emotions into that sentence. And it's just heartbreaking and beautiful. And it's just one of those moments where you're like, you're a star. I had a lot of these with Jennifer Lawrence in Hunger Games, which is obviously a lot more of a star making. (laughs) But where she just puts so many emotions. I'm obsessed with her. But me too. Chris Hemsworth, literally, I'm kind of enjoying that he's a superhero guy right now because it is one of those things that is so easy to overlook and a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, he's an action star, he's an action star. But the more I see of him, literally, he's just, he's so good. And I feel like he's one of those people where his biceps are actually keeping him back because he's got this persona of, yeah, yeah, this is what I look like so I can play the superhero. But that doesn't, and a lot of people think that means you can only play the superhero or you can only play the romantic comedy lead or you can only play that guy. When it actually, he can play them both. And it's sort of, uh, it's sort of limiting in a weird way. But so I'm, I'm really excited to see what he does going forward because he really, yeah, he can throw a stunt punch, whatever. He's also really good. And, like, I thought he was astounding in Cabin in the Woods. I thought he was really good. He really portrayed the intelligence, which I think mm-hmm. is really challenging when you're playing that sort of alpha male jock character. 
Well, and an alpha male Jacques character who's being manipulated to be more of that. Exactly. He still managed to make you understand that there was more going on. Exactly. Intelligence-wise, and he just had, like, an underlying, like, good guy warmth, really genuine caring thing, which I think is always great. And um, I actually also really like Jesse Williams. I thought he was great. He played yeah, the, no, the, I, the amazing scholar. Also, I'm, I mean, I'm a big Grey's fan. But, and it's, it's in a rough patch right now, but he's sort of the saving grace right now. He's the character who's really stepped up. And I, I, really, I really like Jesse Williams. And he's another one where they have his shirt off all the time and he's got these crazy eyes and blah, blah, blah. But he just, it's when he does other stuff or when he's asked to do other stuff that he really shows off. So I liked that he was playing the scholar of all people. Yeah, I like that too. It's funny because uh, that you say that because he played a character on Greek where he was called the hotness monster, and I definitely had a moment when he walked on screen where I was like, "The hotness monster is back." Yeah, yeah, and like on Grey's, he literally like all the press around him, like all the conversations. It's about his abs. Everything yeah. is about those damn abs, and so I think it's really great that he one that he played the scholar, but on the other hand, that the scholar was allowed to be Jesse Williams. You yeah, know, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't cast. I mean, it's not even because, like, even Hollywood nerds are, like, Seth Cohen. They're not real nerds. But they didn't cast, you know, a super geek. They cast someone who usually plays just basic hot guy. And allowed. he was on the football team, and he actually caught that ball at the very beginning. Like, I always thought that was sort of nice that everyone was allowed to be a well-rounded person. And I thought, I thought he did a great job. The other thing that I really want us to talk about is just the relationship between Cabin in the Woods and horror movies in general. Because as you said, like, you don't really like horror movies. Um, so what was the experience like of seeing it, not necessarily getting all... There was a ton of Easter eggs in there that I'll talk about later for horror movie fans. So what was it like watching kind of the more gory, ridiculous scenes, not being someone who traditionally likes horror films? Well, I don't... One of the reasons I don't like horror films is mostly that I don't usually find the storylines compelling. I don't find zombies, for example, scary. I don't find ghosts really scary. Um, Anything that I know to be not real doesn't scare me. And I've also been sort of desensitized to the blood issue. I mean, I watched all of The Sopranos last year in one go. I'm pretty good. So um, it it doesn't bother me. And so I find that um, a lot of movies that are supposed, like their main goal is to elicit fear don't do their job and therefore I don't think the storytelling is very strong so it takes a really special horror movie that's got a real story to tell for me to really invest in the genre and it has to also be funny and affecting and interesting in some way other than ooh look spooky I mean I'm actually kind of I mean I'm similar but in a really different way I get really scared in movies like I will see pretty much any horror film if someone wants to go see it um you know like uh that movie, The Strangers, where it had, like, these people with these masks. Anyways, so I normally spend the first 45 minutes of a horror film terrified. Like, even stupid horror films. Like, there was this one about these dolls who, like, got in your throat, and it scared me. Um, but then 45 minutes in, I feel like I something in my brain clicks, and I'm like, okay, I now understand what you're doing, movie, and you can no longer scare me. And um, once that happens, you know, it comes down to storytelling and there's very 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 few exceptions like there's this one movie called um the descent which whenever i'm talking about good horror films is always my go-to one and actually joss whedon referenced it in an interview where he was talking about cabin in the woods um so i know it was on his mind is that the one where they go into the cave and then there are animals that are basically midgets and spandex 
that would not be how I would characterize them, but yes. Okay, we were watching that at Glenville one time, and I kept talking because I thought it was silly, and John kept yelling at me. Anyway, continue. Um, I'm really bad about talking in movies, guys. Just the worst ever. Don't go to movies with me. (laughs) But anyway, so like it takes the very rare um, scary movie that I stay scared the whole time, but I I enjoy all of them. Um, And I'm also kind of a classic horror movie nerd because um, I used to watch them a lot when I was a teenager, really late at night. And so there's like this weird bonding that I have with these movies. Um, And so sort of like, you know, the whole board that they have with all the different uh, possible bad things that can happen to these kids. Um, That was one of my favorite parts because looking up on it, there's references to Evil Dead, there's references to Texas Chainsaw, there's references to Firefly, there's, you know, like all these... What was the Firefly reference? There's Reavers. Really? Yeah. Oh, I I want to pause. I need the DVD so I can pause and read them. True story. Sort of like in Hunger Games, they have all the odds up there, and every time I see it, I try and get more of the odds, and I can never read them all. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I feel like there's a lot of little, like, hidden things. Uh, And then even there's extra ones that I don't think they did intentionally, but when the unicorn stabs someone... I freaking love that! (laughs) What? I freaking love that someone dies by a unicorn. I mean, that's so funny. (laughs) And the person sitting next to me started singing Bad Horse from uh, Dr. Horse. And it was really exciting. <laughs> awesome. So, Sorry, you said when the unicorn stabs someone. Yeah, that's when he started singing the Bad Horse song. No, no. Like, oh, was that the whole story? You yeah, said that was the whole okay. That was the joke. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, so I think that seeing it as a huge fan of horror films was was interesting. And I'm interested in what other people who didn't like go, oh, well, that's the two girls from The Shining. Or, ooh, that's like Hellraiser. Or, ooh, that's like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I got some of them. I got The, the Shining. Um, I don't remember which ones I got in which I, like, obviously, if the unicorn was a reference to something, I certainly didn't get it. But yeah, um, I, I got a couple of them, the really famous ones. But um, I mostly understood that it was, like, I figured that they all must be references And I also, I love seeing movies that are made by movie fans, specifically Mm -hmm. in the genre. So, like, if, like, Joss Whedon loves horror, but by loving horror, you have the ability to sort of comment on a whole history of horror. And I think, and I mean, obviously, we're also completely ignoring Drew Goddard in this whole thing, which is not fair. It's It's really, it's his movie. Like, he co-wrote, which is even, and he directed it, which, I mean, this was not a directing easy movie. It wasn't solid script. It was tough. So, yeah. do you know anything about him? I mean, he did Cloverfield, and he's um, a pretty successful writer. But I don't, I mean, not the way that I know about. <laughs> he worked on Lost, but I didn't watch Lost. And mm. He worked on Alias, but I didn't watch Alias. Oh, so he's um, a JJ guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, but he also worked on Angel and Buffy. Huh. Interesting. He wrote Origin, which is one of the all-time best episodes of Angel, um, as well as as why we fight, which is also a really good episode. Um, there's, there's, uh, he wrote a lot of really good episodes of them. Um, and he wrote dirty girls in Buffy. That's interesting. Which uh, and dirty conversations girls? with dead people, which Ew. is a pretty awesome episode. So. Yeah. You like conversations with dead. Oh my God. People? I love conversations with dead people. Hmm. I barely remember it to be honest. We need to rewatch Buffy. Oh, we're going to yeah. republish our famous Buffy and angel podcast from the previous My TV podcast before we went on our long hiatus. So we're going to republish that sometime, hopefully, in the coming weeks. Um, so you guys can all check that out. It's not dated because, obviously, the shows were both over by the time we did that. Um, 
And yes. It's interesting to see if my opinions have changed. I'll, I'll, I will be listening to that and trying to figure out whether or not I've gotten smarter or dumber. Well, have you, have you watched it since we recorded that? I think I did right, right when we published it, but I haven't since then. Uh-huh. Oh, Drew Goddard wrote a movie um, that Steven Spielberg is directing that is called Robopocalypse, and it's the sci-fi story set in the aftermath of a robot uprising. Oh, dear Lord. That sounds awesome. Rachel is on wrong. IMDb, as you can all tell <laughs> right now. <laughs> I like to do research so I can having, share. Having a little people. bit of fun on, I think that sounds horrible, but it sounds like you would like it. That sounds uh, like her. So I, I look forward to your review of <laughs> Robopocalypse. Um, but in the meantime, do you have anything else to say about Cabin in the Woods? Sure I do, but I can't think of it right now. <laughs> oh. Okay, well maybe we'll do a supplemental podcast when you think of it. Um, so that's all for now, guys. Uh, we're coming in shorter than usual, so celebration time. Um, yeah, so again, check out the website, myentertainmentworld.ca, and send us an email, kelly at myentertainmentworld.ca. Uh, Rachel doesn't have an official one yet, but we're getting to it. Um, yeah, that's about it for today. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.